0: that we are ready to get going. Good morning everybody. Good to have you here in the house and for everybody who is online, welcome. It's great to have you here at Colwood Church today. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors on the team and uh, just excited to be here. Are you excited to be in church today? Uh, You know, 10 people. That's good. All right. Uh, This is good. Uh, How many of you would like to mountain climb? Anybody want to mountain climb? How many of you think that's the furthest thing away from my imagination that I would ever want to do? But then let me propose this. In fact, I think uh, metaphorically, I think you've all been mountain climbing before, and I'm going to explain what this is. Uh, And and in our lives, I think that we have all kind of had to kind of go up these mountainscapes and and the faces of mountains. But in order to do that, uh, mountain climbers, they, they use this real important tool, and it's called the carabiner. Somebody say carabiner. And a carabiner is what I hold in my hand. A carabiner is a really vital tool for a mountain climber that as they are climbing, they could take the clip here and they could lock it into different rope systems that as they are going up, this thing also can hold up to 4,500 pounds of weight. So this really is a life preserver. Like this is your best friend when you're climbing a mountain. So you clip in the carabiner and you can... Even tighten these things up to kind of get you to a certain place. The carabiner is a critical piece of equipment. And I want to propose today that some of you have used the carabiner before in your life as well. But let me explain what I'm talking about. We are in our series, Not As It Seems. Somebody say, Not As It Seems. This is our series on Revelation. And for the last several weeks, we've kind of talked about Revelations chapter 1 through 3. And it is here uh, in this kind of length, um, we still, through the course of this summer... Um, have a long ways to go. So for the first two and a half months of this series, we've only got through chapters one through three, and we have to get to 22. How many of you are excited for the rest of the summer? (laughs) This is going to be a whirlwind, but we're bringing it, Uh, but it's going to be good. But like, this is what has happened. What we have learned in these last several weeks, chapters one through three, is that it is an earthly dimension, There is something happening on earth. There's a gentleman whose name is John. He's the writer of this book called Revelation. It just so happens that John has been thrown into prison. He's exiled to a literal island called Patmos off the mainland of Greece. And it is here where he is in prison because he will not bow his knee to the authority of the day, Rome and Emperor Domitian. He won't do it, so he's thrown into jail. It is here where cultural chaos begins to take place political agendas are beginning to be seen and it is very difficult as a believer to live in those days and it is here where John writes these chapters to us he wrote letters to his churches as you could see on the screen this is what he has done and the imagery of Revelation has been incredible for us to look at now Richard Bachman says this about that imagery the imagery of Revelation is intended to purge our imagination refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and how it will be. It's fascinating, actually, what we've been able to learn so far in the imagery of Revelation. But I'm here to tell you that then there is going to be chapters 6 through 22, a little bit longer than what we've studied so far, and i got to tell you that the imagery and what we're about to look at through chapter 6 through 22 is absolutely crazy at times. I mean, it is unbelievable. It will leave you inspired and awestruck with what happens there. And in fact, through chapters 6 through 22, I will say this, much confusion has come into the lens of the church. There has been a lot of fear. There's been a lot of controversy because of this. And so what we have right here is we've kind of got two sides of the book of Revelation. And I know many of you are very smart and intellectual in this room today, and you're thinking, well, Sean, you're kind of forgetting a couple things. And lucky for you, no, I'm not. Because what we need to do is how do we justify these easy chapters in fact pastors everywhere around the world we love these chapters about the churches they're really easy to preach this one over here oh hey, like buckle up let's get ready for what is going to happen so how do we justify these two things and that is where the carabiner comes into play for us today so what i'd like us to see and this is your intellect your smartness is that chapters four and five were omitted intentionally by me because they are that important to the story See, what we could do with chapters one through three is we can attach them to the carabiner. We understand that the carabiner is that vital to a mountain climber, but I'm saying spiritually today that this carabiner is going to be important for us. So we attach chapters one through three to this, and then we also have the opportunity to attach chapters six through 22. Now we suddenly have something to work with. It's connected itself. Why? Because this right here in chapters four and five are the centrality to the book of Revelation. In fact, for thousands of years, the churches looked at chapters four through five as the source of the worship as to what we have today in our modern culture. It gives us a, it kinda gives us a template of what worship has looked like. In fact, I would advocate today that chapters four and five are the main vision. They are the main apocalypse. They are the main revelation for what takes place not only in chapters one through three, but for the rest of the entire book. And I need us to see this today because if you miss the carabiner of chapters four and five today, if you miss this, I'm telling you that misinterpretation for this book will happen for your life. And I think that that's why we've become so lost and confused when it comes to the book of Revelation because we have misapplied and haven't understood the carabiner of chapters four and five. It is the linchpin. It is what we are going to look at as the reminder as to why Revelation is held together and why it all comes together because of these chapters alone. Fair enough? So let's pray and then let's take a look at it today. Father, thank you for your word and I pray that you will teach us now. Thank you for this illustration even of just the carabiner and how vital you are to this story. And may we not be lost today in the things that are around us swirling about this book, but may we put our attention fixed on you. So teach us is what I'm praying for today, um, according to your book, and allow us to learn some new things, but again, to align and to shape our lives to you. So I give you thanks for this time and for your word. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Come on, everybody, say amen. Amen. This morning, I'd like to speak to us from the subject a throne and a lamb. And so, as we learned in chapter one, it's important to read the book of Revelation out loud, it says, because when you do, you get a blessing. How many of you would like a blessing today? I mean, only three of you. That's great. Uh, I know all of you are trying to throw your hands up. You're just lazy. Anyway, uh, uh, I'm kidding. Wow, this church, wow. It's good. Uh, no, but we, we read this because there is a blessing to it. That's what the scripture says, and so we're gonna do exactly that. In, in chapter four, verse one, if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen for you as well. It says this. This is John. Then I looked, and I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice that I had heard before from chapter one spoke to me like that same trumpet blast from chapter 1, and the voice said this, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. So the very first thing that we are shown is this door, and there's this door in heaven. And so this is important for us to see, because in the previous weeks, we've learned out of chapter 3, especially when it came to the church of Philadelphia that Pastor Josh spoke to us about, it says that Jesus is the only one in this universe that can open doors And he can close doors. So there's this referral there. And then to the church of Laodicea, it says that Jesus is at your door, the door of your heart, and he's doing what? He's just knocking. He wants you to open the door so that he could come in. But it's this aspect again of him standing at a door. And now with John, our writer, he is standing at another door. Except this door is unlike any other door. We're going to look at that in a moment. Now, don't send me emails, don't don't do anything bad, but I've watched a movie recently and it's now become my illustration, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse. I'm a Marvel fan. I really like Doctor Strange and the things that were happening around this. This is a weird movie, I'm not going to lie to you, but it was this idea of Doctor Strange being able to go to a multiverse. What was happening in this movie, and I won't spoil too much for it, they all die anyway, but... uh, Uh, (laughs) I'm kidding, kind of. Anyway, so what would happen is is Dr. Strange is is actually in New York City. That's the home base. And when he opens a door, he is introduced to multiverse. He's introduced to other paths in which he could go, and the story kind of wraps itself around that. But I was thinking as I'm watching the movie, how cool is that? Like if I could open a door and boom, I'm in a completely different dimension. And, and it made me ask this question, do you think that we have these even on earth today? Like think about this, like do we have different dimensions? Are there doors that we could open and boom, like we're in another place in another time. A, a key literary style of Dick is in the end of the world and you got to fear for your lives. That's not what the apocalypse means. Apocalyptic means that there is a grand reveal. So it's asking me this question of, is there more to reality than, the, than my unaided senses? I mean, taste, touch, smell, hearing, sight. I mean, we appear on this earth to be pretty settled in what we can see and what we can explain, right? But here's my question for us today. But is your perception of reality accurate? Think about this. Is your perception of reality Accurate. I mean, could there be more to than what we just see with our senses? Is there something that I am maybe not seeing? Maybe. So verse 2, it says, and instantly I was in the Spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone was, was sitting on it. So instantly, John is taken by the Spirit into heaven, into another dimension, and into another reality, and there is a throne, and someone is sitting on that throne. Did you catch that? John is taken to a different dimension in the universe. A grand reveal is happening to this man, and we need to understand, where is John? He's in jail at Patmos on the earth. And yet, suddenly, he is in another dimension seeing something completely different. People like you and I, we have this fascination with this reality, don't we? Heaven. Have you ever thought about heaven before? Like, when am I going to go there? Hopefully not too soon, right? When am I going to go there? Who's going to be there? What's it going to be like? We have this fascination with heaven. And yet John, while in a prison cell, is given a permission to see things about heaven, and he wrote it down so that we could have a little bit of notes for our own lives. But please do not mistake this. Heaven really is not that far away, according to Revelation chapter 4. John is on earth, and yet his reality has been opened to a completely different dimension. Fascinating to me to see that. George Carrod says that heaven is a part of the universe, but a part which is entered by the opening of the spiritual eye rather than by an external form of transit. When John is taken to this dimension of heaven, it says that he saw a door, and as he walks through the door, the central image that he sees in heaven is this thing called a throne. The throne image is the most used image in the entire book of Revelation. Besides references to Jesus, the throne. So there's something about the throne that God wants John to know. There's something about the throne that John writes down so that you and I could know. There's something about a throne. In fact, the throne is used 47 times in the book of Revelation. Another 77 times with a reference towards it in conjunction with something else. And in fact, when we have used the word throne, we've learned about the throne already. In fact, two weeks ago when we finished with the church of Laodicea, it says that those who are victorious, this is Jesus talking, those who are victorious will sit with me on my what? Throne. On my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. So, there's something about throne here that we have to pay attention to. So, Laodicea is now preparing us for this heavenly dimension. We've been wrapping our heads around an earthly perspective, but now there's a heavenly perspective to the story. And these two are gonna collide and we're gonna take a look at what it is. See, John's writers knew about this imagery because Rome was all about its thrones. This is where its rulers sat. And when they sat on their throne, they were indicating a few things I'm in charge. There was dominion, there was authority, there was power, there was supremacy. To sit on a throne was something important visually in that culture. We don't get that in Canada, right? Like Justin Trudeau does not go sit on a throne. I mean, it's just, it's something we can't fathom. But in this culture, this was a big deal. And it's so important that God wants us to see it. But I want us to see this one thing about the throne. As important as it is, there's someone sitting on the throne. Now, this is important for us because remember when I said to us today as we are talking about what we're doing in the carabiner, this is so important that you cannot forget this, that there is someone sitting on the throne. Who? Who is sitting on the throne? The person who is sitting on the throne, his name is Elohim, Yahweh. He is God the Father, And he is sitting on the throne. Interesting, though, when you look at this text, it says that God is not up and he's not walking around, pointing his finger at humanity and be like, what are you doing? How can I do this? It doesn't say that he's running around in a frantic pace trying to figure this thing out. The detail of the revelation says that this person is doing what? He is seated. He is sitting down and he is chilling out. He is relaxed. And why is he that? is because he is secure in his authority in who he is. He is the carabiner of the entire universe. He is the one who knows that he does not need to be frantic when we are running around like chickens with our heads cut off on this earth. He is seated, he is sitting back, and he is like, I'm good, and I'm still in charge. I love this detail as to the revelation. I want us to see today that the throne of the universe, it's occupied. It's not up for grabs because God is in control. That is a great time to say amen. Well done for those of you that did it. The story goes on and it says this. The the one who was sitting on the throne, we have understood, the one is God. The God who's sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like Jasper and carnelian. And the glow of the the emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. There were 24 thrones surrounding him and there were 24 elders who sat on those thrones. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. Now from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal and in the center and around the throne were four living beings each covered with eyes front and back the first of these living beings was like a lion the second was like an ox the third had a human face and the fourth was like an eagle in flight wouldn't you love to wake up in the middle of the night and have one of these beasts in your room with you I mean, this is some crazy stuff that we're reading right now. It gets better. But each one of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Hollywood can't make this stuff up. They ripped the Bible off. Okay, so day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The one who always was, who, who is, and, and who is still to come. And whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and they exist because you were created and because you created what you what you pleased. Wow, what a beautiful picture of heaven. It's weird, but it's beautiful. And there's lots here in these verses that we have to wrap our heads around because what John does is he is transported to this other dimension of heaven. He he tells us as readers, this is, and he begins to describe it, and he uses the word like. Somebody say like. See, John's vocabulary could not comprehend nor orate back to us what he was truly seeing. He's like, it's kind of like this. He's trying to put an earthly lens on a, a heavenly beautiful or heavenly beauty, and it just didn't cover the magnitude of where he was standing in the moment. So he said, as he looked at the one who was sitting on the throne, he was like Jasper. Okay, what's that all about, John? Like Jasper. It was a translucent stone like glass, that when you applied light to Jasper, what happened was a rainbow of colors. John is trying to show you and I that in the throne room of heaven, that that there is something like the beauty and the radiance, like you could not contain everything that was coming from that throne. There are 24 other thrones that wrap themselves around the one throne. Like, what's that all about? Who are these people who are sitting on the throne? 24, we understand, is the word of completeness when it comes to revelation and understanding. So you see 24, it's important. But 12 plus 12 equals? So many commentators believe that the 12 is the representative of the the tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples or apostles put those people together, that's who is sitting on the thrones, who are surrounding. What John is trying to show us is that this is a symbol of completeness. It is unity in diversity. And you'll notice a couple of things about these people sitting on their thrones. They're dressed in white. Well, white, as we've understood, is a symbolic uh, uh, color for purity. They're pure. They sit in front of a majestic king, Jesus, God. And not only that, they've got this, these gold crowns, which represents royalty. This is so important from these things. But let's go back to the throne for a second, because there are some things about the throne that are really critical for us to see. And here are the four things that I see. From the throne. There's something happening from the throne. And it is this thing called lightning and thunder. And we sang about this, actually, just a few moments ago. Did you, did you catch that in the song, the Revelation song that we did? Flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder. This is the direct reference to is Exodus chapter 19. In front of Mount Sinai, where God asks Moses to go up the mountain, and he gets his thing, these things called the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard of these before, but that's Mount Sinai. And as Moses is on Mount Sinai, from the mountain, there is thunder and lightning, being poured out, and the people who are down in the trenches, the Israelites, they know that something is happening on the mountain, that the God of the universe is meeting with their leader, Moses, and what we see in this throne room of heaven is that the same thunder and lightning is permeating from the throne, representing this, that the one who is on the throne is awesome, powerful, and holy, and his name is God. It says that from behind the throne, there's this rainbow. And a rainbow is very symbolic in the Christian culture because of Genesis chapter 9 and this character whose name was Moses or Noah. And Noah decided to build a boat, if you haven't heard this story. God floods the earth, saves Noah and his family, and then into the sky he places this thing called a rainbow. And the rainbow represents God's mercy and faithfulness. And so from heaven, God is revealing to John and to you and I today that his mercy and faithfulness, it also flows from the throne today for you and I. And that's good news for us today. In the front of the throne, it says that there are seven lamps of light, the sevenfold spirit of God. Again, what we are learning here is that God does not have seven different spirits. He's not that much of a multi-personality that way. What is talking about the number seven is the number of perfection. What we are learning when we see the seven lamps representative of the sevenfold Spirit of God is that the Holy Spirit of God is present in completeness and in unity with the Father and with the Son. And in the throne room of heaven, we see the Holy Spirit of God also represented. Unbelievable. There's one more thing about the front of the throne that we cannot ignore, because it's something that is probably missed by most of our eyes, but it is something important. It said that there was a sea of glass in front of the throne. In chapter 21 of Revelation, that sea disappears. And so the question is, where does the sea go? What's the deal with the sea? And so I asked a few of my friends this week, like, where did the sea go? One person said, climate change. And I uh, thought that was smart. <laughs> Other, other commentators uh, jumped in and said, some people believe the sea is there because it represents the, the chasm. It's a separateness uh, to, in order to get to God. So God's on his throne. We still got this. But then there are other commentators, and this is where I've personally landed as I've studied this a little bit more thoroughly, is that in, in the ancient times when it came to the sea, the people of God, the Israelites and the other surrounding uh, parties and uh, nations, they hated the sea The sea was representative of chaos. It's where we learn in the Bible as well as the great Leviathan that comes from the sea and devours. People didn't want to travel because they feared that their their sin and their thing would cause their death. And so people had a great fear when it came to the sea. In fact, the sea represented that chaos. And I think in a spiritual application as I'm processing this, I'm thinking this about you and I today. Has anybody in this room or online today, have you ever experienced chaos before? Have you ever gone through something where you're just like, I can't, like, it does not make sense, and I'd rather throw the towel in? And we've all experienced chaos at some different point. And I, and I really love how some of this commentating that I've been reading is that they're talking about this because, like I said, this sea disappears in chapter 21. Same throne room, same scene, but the sea is gone. And We lean into the sea because it represents chaos, but we need to see this one point about the sea when it comes to Revelation chapter four. It said that the sea was not raging, but it was what? Calm. That even in the chaos of yours and my life, there is still one seated on the throne, and that sea in front of him is like, easy breezy, folks, I got you. That even in the presence of God, your chaos is even calm and smooth to him. It doesn't diminish our chaos and what we walk through. But what it is saying is that God is able to see you through your chaos. Because guess what? Chaos even submits to the name of Jesus. It's brilliant, this imagery. And we'll come back to that, see you a little bit later. But notice the action of what these elders and these weird living creatures are doing. They are, or actually, let me talk about those four living creatures first. It also says that there is something happening around the throne. And that's where those living creatures, those living beings come into play. What is that all about, Sean? The easiest way to give a summation of that for us today, and we will visit this in future weeks, it really represents the whole Um, animate creation made by God for God and so we'll talk about what creation is doing in this story and you and I included with that but notice the action of what these elders and these living creatures are doing they are doing this thing that we have known for thousands and thousands of years something that we have done this morning by raising our voices together and the word is worship they're worshiping And when you look at it specifically, um, maybe you've heard some of these songs before. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty Who was and is and is to come So we lift up His name With sound of singing We lift up His name In all the earth, lift up your voice and give him glory, for he is worthy to be praised. See, from these two chapters, we are given some of the most beautiful songs we've ever had in the existence of the church. And their focus is on the one who sits on the throne. Nothing else. Not about how I feel, not about my week and what I've gone through. It's about the one who is in control seated and secure, that's what worship is. I bring me into the presence of somebody who is very worthy, who is secure, and even in all my chaos, he says, peace be still, and he brings relaxation to my life. This is the worship that we get to see. And please do not misunderstand this when it comes to our worship. Many of us believe that worship is when we just sing. Correction, that's not true. Worship, singing-wise, is one aspect in how you could worship. You could worship God in your workplace. You could worship God in your school by the things you say, the actions that you do, the lifestyle that you lead. Your life is a matter and an issue of worship, which is why the book of Revelation is a book about your discipleship. Are you worshiping the one who sits on the throne? I love what Daryl Johnson says about this worship. It says that when we go to worship, we are entering a service already in progress. (laughs) i love this we think we're coming to church to worship no way there's a worship service already happening because john shows us in heaven there's a worship party going down and it's about the one who sits on the throne and eugene peterson says this about our worship worship is a meaning a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in god and not live eccentrically If there is no center, there is no circumference. If you come to church or wherever you may be and you sing and there is no center, you are just flapping your gums. It's centered on the one who is worthy, and that's why we get to worship. This is pretty cool so far, eh? That's just chapter four. We got chapter five to go. I hope you're not hungry. Anyway, okay. Let's continue. Then it says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, and there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or in all of earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to read it. So John begins to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to read it. A few quick details about this scroll and these seals. Number one is that this scroll, we are shown that there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, which was different from antiquity. Most scrolls only had writing on one side. It was expensive, important, but on this scroll, there's writing on both sides of it. What is this scroll? What is it all about? And most commentators have landed on the fact that this is scripture. What this scroll is that nobody can open, this scroll contains the full account of God's plan for the earth. It is holding the destiny for the world in this one scroll. How many of you would like to open that scroll and read it yourself, knowing what in the world is God doing in this earth? This is that scroll, but it is sealed with seven seals. Not the barking ones, but this is a signature seal placed upon the letter. So we understand this about this now. It has an authority to it because it's been sealed with, by somebody and for this exact moment. But those seals, we're going to talk about them next week, okay? We're not going to do that today because of our time. So you got to come back next week. I tricked you. All right, so you got to come back and do this with us. But notice that there are seven seals. What does the number seven mean? perfection, this is interesting, because these seals, you don't want to read them, they're not fun, we're gonna, but they represent a perfectedness, what is it saying, it is the completeness of God, that in God's plan, something is going to take place, the carabiner is showing up to do something important in this moment, and this is, this is critical for us today. Because in Matthew chapter 6, we learn these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in? Interesting. That God wants to take the dimension of heaven and to smash it together with the dimension of earth. God's whole purpose here for us, folks, believe this or not, is he wants to make the realities of his kingdom known on this earth. What happens in the kingdom of earth when we rub up against the kingdom of God is what is about to take place with these seals. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But the whole intention is God is trying to bring heaven and the realities, this scene, he wants to bring heaven to earth. And it is here we are now led to the second window of the book of Revelation. The first one was when John heard that trumpet like a voice and he turned around and he saw Jesus standing amongst his churches and we talked about those churches for two months. But this is now the second window and the second window is revealed this way in verse five and it says this, but one of the 24 elders turned to John who was weeping very bitterly. He turned to him and said, quit crying, you cry baby. Right? That's my my interpretation. But he said, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah is on his way. And I got to tell you, if you're John in heaven while you're on earth, I know that's totally mind-blowing, but it is what it is. And he's like, nobody can open the scroll, nobody knows the plan, nobody can read what it has to say, but he says, no, 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 the lion of the tribe of Judah, and i got to tell you, if I'm going to war one day, right now, please listen to me, I am not looking for a house cat to come with me on my journey, I am looking for the lion, Why? Because the lion is majestic, the lion is powerful, a lion is representative of victory. C.S. Lewis, in his writing The Chronicles of Narnia got it, got it bang on when he used Aslan, who was a lion, to represent victory, and strength, and might. And, and let, let's get to this right now. The title of this whole entire series is what? Not as it seems. So here's the big bad lion coming to play and to save the day. And it says that John turns around and he sees a lamb that looked as if it had been killed, slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne where God was and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. The original language would say this about this lamb. It's a little lamb. Mary had a a little lamb trying to show us something. But this little lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Weird. (laughs) The seven horns represent strength. The seven eyes represent wisdom. You want to know something about this little lamb? He is all-powerful and he is all-wise. This is who we're beginning to describe and to see. Representing the sevenfold Spirit of God that is sent into every part of the earth. And that little lamb stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. This is a beautiful picture that we cannot miss. It's the carabiner of this whole entire series. That there in all of heaven and earth, nobody could unlock the seal, nobody could open the scroll except a little lamb who is already butchered blood all over it. But this little lamb is all powerful and all wise, but he's got blood all over himself. Like, what is going on here? And why you can't miss this carabiner, folks, is that no matter what the chaos is in this earth, there is still someone who is in control, someone who is in charge, and he sent his son to be that little lamb. It's why we represented the communion table today, because there was a little lamb who was slaughtered, so that you and I would understand freedom, the forgiveness of sins, and to have a chance. The little lamb that we are studying today from the throne room of heaven. I know this is a spoiler alert, but it's Jesus. <laughs> But did you notice where this little lamb stands? In front of those four beasts, living creatures, and he stands at the throne. Well, Sean, I thought the throne was meant for God. You know what Jesus is communicating to us today? He is God. He is the fullness of his Father. He is the fullness of the Spirit of God And in this little snapshot of heaven today, we see God the Father, Jesus Christ, the little lamb, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God, and they are in perfect unison and unity, and they are in charge of this chaotic universe. Wow, this is so good. No no wonder that this title is not as it seems. Look at the lion, and it's a lamb slaughtered. Bruce Metzger says this, instead of a ferocious lion that hurts other people, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb and takes into himself the hurts of others. Beautiful. It is easy when we look at the book of Revelation to get lost in the details of all of this. The numbers, the colors, the images, but please do not miss the context. In verse eight of this chapter, it says, and when the little lamb took the scroll the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense which are the prayers of God's people see Jesus is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll and guess what folks he's already opened it and the story is being told for a long time already and and will still be and we're going to learn a little bit more about that There's a real important detail, I don't know if you caught that in that verse, but these 24 elders are holding these gold bowls, and these bowls are filled with incense, and that incense is symbolic of, it says the prayers of the saints. You, me, people who have gone before us, people who will come after us. What they're showing us in the throne room of heaven today, another dimension, is that your prayers matter. How cool is that? That whatever you pray, however you pray, Apparently, they're caught with these bowls and they're offered as incense to the one who sits on the throne. Like, no matter how big or small your prayers may be, the point is pray. Talk to the one who is in control because he's seated and he is secure and he's just looking for his children to come and talk to him. And we get this opportunity today. And so please be encouraged that your prayers matter. Prayers are not lost nor forgotten with who God is. It matters to him, and he invites us today to pray to the one who sits on the throne. and unt-